Hi, friend. Welcome to episode 41 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. I've been away for a little bit, but today my awesome guest is stage manager Cynthia Hennen Marino. Her work with the brand new groundbreaking immersive devised opera The Wreck is just one of the things we discuss today on Sally Pal. <laughs> I'm your Sally Pal podcast host, Sally Adams. Every week, I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email anytime to sally at sallypal.com. Your ideas keep great conversations coming every week. Check out sallypal.com join for a cool free theater resource. Did I mention that the creator's notebook is free? Also, you can be a Sally Pal just by joining. There are other good reasons to join, like theater cartoons, inside scoop on fresh productions, and being part of a larger creator community. Stage manager Cynthia Hennen Marino hit the ground running after getting an MFA in stage management from the College Conservatory of Music. She went to New York and got hired almost immediately to work on the Broadway production of Equus, starring Richard Griffiths and Daniel Radcliffe in 2008. The journey started, however, when she and her identical twin, Stacey Hennon Stone, got sucked into doing props for the musical Anything Goes when they were high school freshmen. The two host a podcast called Twins Talk Theater about working backstage. Stacy is a professional technical director in Long Beach, California, but neither twin planned on becoming a theater professional. Cindy started by pursuing a college degree in math, and her sister started in the business school. But theater has a way of pulling you in, and they both graduated from different colleges with theater degrees. Cindy's sister headed to Southern California, and Cindy followed when she found work with Palos Verdes Performing Arts. Cindy and I talk about Long Beach Opera, the opera Nixon in China, the L.A. opera Hopscotch, and Portland Opera, where she currently stage manages the opera Faust. I can't stop saying opera. This latest venture features 3D projections based on the work of sculpture artist John Frame. The projections and projection mapping based on his sculpture are a collaboration among designers Frame, Vita Tsaikun, David Adam Moore, and Dwayne Schuler. It's received a lot of attention already from a previous reveal with Lyric Opera in Chicago. Opera Wire called this production a visual feast for the ages. But Portland's production isn't the most progressive thing Cindy's done this year. In March, she and a small contingent of creators and curators with Opera Omaha embarked on a rare journey. The Wreck is an immersive devised opera created in 10 days, borrowing music and other bits from Slavic mythology and mermaid folklore. It features the writings of Anne Sexton, Alice Walker, and Adrian Rich, and the music of Donizetti, Schubert, and von Bingen. Ukrainian composer Mariana Sadovska adds new music, creating an eclectic, otherworldly piece set in Omaha. Sort of. I know you're going to enjoy hearing what Cynthia has to say about stage managing and opera. There's plenty of fresh ideas in the world of live performance. I can't wait to see what she does next. Be sure and listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. Cindy. 
Cynthia Hennen-Marino, thank you for joining me on Sally Pal. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to talk with you, and we kind of ran into each other on a Facebook site. I was so interested to talk to you, especially after I read about this latest thing you're working on, but let's talk a little bit about your background. You are a stage manager, but you have a background in many things, including scene shop work and costuming and lots of other really cool areas. I do. So I started, actually, my my sister does theater as well. We both started in high school, and it was our freshman year of high school, and our best friend got cast in a musical. They were doing Anything Goes, and she got cast, and she was very excited. She wanted to be a performer, and she was like, you know, the first couple days of rehearsal, they realized they needed a props person. So a lot of people came to us, and they're like, hey, do you want to do props? And we're like, we've never done theater. I have no idea what props is. We have absolutely no interest (laughs) in this. And people kept asking and asking because we were friends with a lot of people on the show. And we were like, okay, well, I guess it can't be that hard. And so we agreed to do props for Anything Goes. Sucker. So difficult because, you know, what are you in in freshman? You're like 14, 15, so you can't drive anywhere. You're in school all day long. How the hell are we supposed to get props taken care of after school when you can't drive anywhere? It was difficult, and we hated it. And then the next show came up, and they asked us to do the next show. And we were like, are you crazy? We're never doing this again. And then we we now do this for a profession. What magic sauce did you take in the between time? (laughs) We started out in props and then the stage managers graduated and we moved to stage management. And, you know, in high school, you kind of have to do a little bit of everything. And so our parents would not let us go to to college for theater because you'll never make a living at it. And we don't want to be poor, starving artists. Which is why I have an English degree. Well, I originally went for math and my sister went for business. Um, And neither of us got along with our professors in that field, and we both needed work-study, and so we ended up in the theater just to do work-study, and I worked in the costume shop. My sister started in the scene shop, and then slowly we, you know, switched from a major and a minor in theater to double majoring to majoring in theater and minoring in something else, because that's that's how far we were able to take our parents. They said, you can major in theater, but you still have to get a degree in something else as well, just in case. (laughs) Once it started becoming about your careers, you were like, I'll take it from here. Exactly. (laughs) Your sister is a very integral part of your growing into theater process. She is, and she's also my identical twin. And so we've just always naturally did everything together. We went to different colleges, which is what's kind of funny about this, is that, you know, we went to different colleges for different degrees, and we both ended up in theater about the same time anyways, and now we both work professionally in theater. She's technical director, and I'm a stage manager. Wow. Is she at Long Beach? Am I right about that? She was at Long Beach with me for a number of years. She actually lives in Long Beach, and then she was production manager and associate technical director at Palos Verdes Performing Arts in Southern California for nine and a half half years and now she's freelancing again like I am. A lot of people fall into it. I worked in the costume shop for four years and I worked in the scene shop for a few years and obviously I started in props and I read music really well because my, um, you know, I was taught music when I was a kid and so stage management to me just kind of seemed like the next natural step because then I could communicate with the costume shop and I knew how to communicate with the scene shop and I knew how to read music. And stage management to me is kind of putting all the pieces together. And it sounds like you've done a lot of things, including uh, not just costume shop, but set design and hanging lights and all of that stuff. Yes, yes. I can easily hang lights and focus lights and program a light board. <laughs> I'm interested that you have a background with a minor in behavioral psychology. Yes. So tell me something about how that helps you in your field. <laughs> it actually is amazing. I My undergrad just happened to be behavioral psychology, and so when I went to school, I I didn't think about what psychology I wanted, and that just really stuck with me. I think it's amazing for a stage manager. One of my favorite things is um, 
and I wrote my master thesis on this, is a nonverbal communication for stage managers. And to me, it is so behavioral. It's people, especially performers and people in the arts field, can kind of sense each other's moods and feelings. And, you know, stage managers set the tone for a rehearsal hall. So to learn behavioral psychology for me, and I didn't realize this at the time, but, you know, looking back on it, the way that I conduct myself, hold myself, you know, even the positions of my arms can relay a lot to people around me. And so many people are not aware of that. Give me some ideas of things that you may have become aware of that you changed in order to have people perceive you differently. The two big things for me is people crossing their arms a lot. A lot of people do it because they don't know what to do with their arms or they're uncomfortable, and so they'll cross their arms in front of their chest. If you look at it from a behavioral standpoint, that kind of shows that you're closed off or that you're nervous about something because you're you're kind of hugging yourself and you're, you're closing yourself off to the conversation. And it's something that I do naturally because I still get nervous. And so I kind of want to hug myself, but I, I force myself to put my hands down or put them in my pockets or, you know, do something with them so that it, it physically shows that I'm open to the conversation and open to what's happening in the, the rehearsal room. The second one is, you know, you're getting close to the end of a rehearsal or the end of a class and people start packing up their stuff, even if you have five more minutes of class left. Well, as soon as someone starts packing up their folder or their backpack or they start putting their jacket on, they've mentally checked out already. Even if the class is still going or a conversation is still happening, if you're packing up, in my head, I'm like, well, you're obviously done with this conversation. So that's another big thing for me. You know, even if a rehearsal's over, I don't start packing up my stuff or a meeting's over unless I physically want to relay to them that this conversation's done. If I want it to be open and more of an open process or an open conversation, then I won't pack up my stuff until it's very clear that the conversation's done or that person's gone. Same with putting on my jacket. You know, it's just showing them that I'm invested in the conversation, invested what's happening, and that I'm not mentally checked out and moved on to the next part of my day. Sure. That's such a great little tidbit of information, because I think we don't think that much about how people perceive what we're doing. Yeah, no, you don't at all. And so that's kind of why I wrote my whole thesis on it. And I read all these books. And I was just like, these are things that people do on a daily basis that you just are not aware of, or you're not consciously aware of it, you know, to make those small changes, hopefully will make you know a much more open working environment for rehearsals. Do you find that people are more willing to have those conversations, those in-depth conversations with you because you occur as a more open person? I think so. I mean, it's kind of hard to judge yourself. I've had a number of people tell me, especially on my last couple shows, that they feel that I'm a very personable, relatable person and that I make friends really easily. Funny because it's kind of the opposite. I feel I feel I have to work really hard to make friends. But I guess because I'm working internally, mm-hmm. everybody just perceives that it's just easy yeah, for me. You never know how you occur, do you? <laughs> exactly. But on my last contract in Omaha, I had three people be like, yeah, but you're so open and personable and you just make so many friends. And I was like, oh, I'm glad you think that. <laughs> Little do you know, I'm thinking horrible thoughts at this very moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spending the whole time thinking like, what are my hands doing? Do I have my jacket on? Have I packed up anything in the wrong way? What is my head doing? Am I, you know, are my eyes really shifty? I don't know what's going on, but but I do think... But I do think it, it is coming across to other people that, you know. You're invested. And invested, yeah. yeah, exactly. I'm curious how much input do you think you get to have in a new work as a stage manager? I love that question. I think when you're taught stage management, at least the schools I went to, you know, the schools I went to kind of taught that stage managers are there to manage but have absolutely no artistic input and no input on what happens with the show. And I very much disagree with that to a point. 
because for me, a stage manager is the one that should know all the pieces and know everything that's going on. And so some of the decisions that have to be made will come across as artistic, even if they're more technical. You know, like Mm -hmm. that platform cannot be five feet tall without a railing because of safety issues that will affect artistic choices because artistically a five-foot-tall platform versus a three-foot-tall platform can be very different. And I think in experimental theater and new works and immersive theater, my experience, especially stage managers, have very much been involved in the process and very much part of the team and the artistic choices that are made because you're the one that's looking out for the safety and looking out to, you know, see is this actually possible to do? Yes, it looks great on paper and it sounds good in your head, but can we physically make this happen? And those do, in a sense, affect artistic choices. Yeah, can't we tie a scarf from this guy and dangle him from the rafters, you know? Would that be okay? Right. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I've been very lucky to work with teams that think the same way I do, and so they do include me in those. And I think part of it is I I worked at Long Beach Opera for years, which does a lot of... um, kind of experimental locations and newer work. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky with that because I would work with the same group of people over and over. We had a relationship already. And so it was easier to have that collaborative relationship when you already are very familiar with those people and how they work. And certainly directors get a feel for your work style and you probably developed a team ethic with that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I've been very lucky. Well, you're doing all kinds of new things in Long Beach. I know you did Nixon in China, which is one of my favorite operas. I'm super excited that you got to do that. It's some of the most beautiful music. Those chorus scenes are just stunning. The whole opening, I, you know. Isn't it great? For 15 minutes of the show, is just some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard. I would love to see it. I've, I've never actually been in a city where it's been playing. Yeah, and it hasn't been playing a lot lately. There went through like a 10-year period where there's two productions that were traveling around, but mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't seen it too much lately. Are you familiar with Hopscotch? I knew some singers that were in it because there were singers mm-hmm. I'd worked with in Long Beach, but I haven't, I never, I was in New York at the time that they were performing in LA, and so I didn't get to see it. That just seems like a total shift from something like uh, Nixon in China, which is massive chorus and all that to something that is very intimate in cars right driving around LA and there were like nine cars that you traveled exactly. around in. if you wanted to be in the room with the performer you had to be in the car <laughs> right I love that they're doing so many different things because in today's world people don't want to just go sit at a theater for three hours you know like oh. they want to be out and they want to be moving and they want the all the external stimulation oh yeah what kind of trends are you seeing I've noticed it a lot in the past like seven years is newer works that are being written are being considered more chamber operas. They're shorter pieces. There's not a lot of new stuff, in my experience, being written that's like three, three and a half hours long, as, you know, Bohem or Carmen or Faust is. So they're shortening it a lot. They're making orchestras and choruses a little bit smaller, and that's partly just having to do with budget constraints and just the economy. Not many companies can afford to have like a 60-person chorus anymore. You cut that down to 12, and now your work's going to be done more often. And even traditional pieces, I'm finding people are trying to cut more and more to Mm -hmm. make them shorter, or they're trying to add elements, as in the Faust that I'm working on now, that is including projections and a new design by a a sculpture artist. You're in Portland right now working on Faust. This is actually the first. (laughs) We're doing it in a traditional theater, so it's a proscenium house. This is the first time in two years I've actually worked in a proscenium house, so I'm kind of excited about that. (laughs) You don't have to worry about crowds and navigating and all of that. Or electricity or bathrooms or parking. (laughs) Yeah, all of that stuff is, you know, it's all taken care of for me. But what's non-traditional about it, and this is kind of the trend that I'm seeing, is 
the whole design and the whole concept, um, the artistic director at this company went to an exhibit by John Frame, who's a sculpture artist, a number of years ago, and just loved this guy's work and said, we would like, have you ever done an opera? Would you like to design for opera? And so they found the director, who's Kevin Newberry, and Kevin kind of created this team, and they worked with John Frame to create an entire production design for Faust because they, they saw his work and felt that it felt like Faust. And so John Frame has never done a show before, I believe, and that's how we created it. So when you, if you were just to look at the set, you probably would never guess that it's Faust because it's so non-traditional. It's all very sculpture, and there's um, projections and projection mapping and a, a lot of videos that John himself has created that they've turned into projections. When you look at it, and I'll try to share pictures with you, there's this O-man that's on stage that watches the whole show, and that's an actual enlarged version of a sculpture bond created years ago and all the different set pieces you can kind of see in his work when you look at his website so it's and the projections itself are so integral to the to the set i think i i have more projection cues than i do have lighting cues the the younger generation because of youtube and because of the amount of information that we gather on a daily basis with the internet Mm-hmm. It's hard for younger audiences to sit and watch a three-hour opera where nothing physically happens and you're just listening to the music because that's just not how we're trained anymore. Mm-hmm. And so to include these projections, and there's 15 or 16 internal scene changes that are small, but you now have visually things happening to engage your brain as well as the music. Well, from what I was reading about it, it sounded like these sculptures that were basically 3D projections were coming to life. Yes, our Mephistopheles comes to life. So you actually watch, he's supposed to be like a wooden carved sculpture. Mm -hmm. So there's a projection of a guy carving a sculpture, and then all of a sudden you pull the screen down and he's standing there behind you. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I don't know if I gave it away. (laughs) It performed in Chicago, so people kind of know, but yeah, there's a lot of wooden sculptures and there's four devils that kind of like help Mephistopheles around the stage. And all of them, their masks look like wood carvings, and the projections are kind of foreshadowing what's happening. Or there's a few, there's the, the Marguerite Garden scene, which is our act three. Um, there's flowers growing along the walls as she's singing about flowers and how her love is growing. And then the projections show all of these flowers growing up along the walls in the house. I think even hearing this is not going to be enough. You really do have to see it, I suspect. <laughs> I think you do. I've watched the video from Chicago twice and I've been, you know, pouring over paperwork for a week and a half and it's just going to be really amazing. Well, now, have you had the chance to meet Frame and talk with him? I have not. He shows up on Sunday, I believe. That's exciting. He is going to be here. And then we have our designer. She showed up yesterday and so they've been doing costume fittings. I can't help but feel like as a stage manager, working in the world of opera would be pretty exciting. But how did you end up in opera? Is it simply because you could read music? (laughs) That's almost exactly what it was. I really wanted to do musicals. That's what I love, musicals. And so in college, I tried to do all the musicals. And when I chose a grad school, I knew that I wanted to do something related to music. And there's relatively few master's programs in stage management that do musicals and operas. Most of them are just dramas, and I didn't want to do that. So I went to Cincinnati because they have a conservatory, and I went because I wanted to do musicals. And my first two shows were musicals, and then they said, well, you can read music really well. Try doing opera. And then once you get out into the real world, oh, and then at Cincinnati, Cincinnati Opera is a big summer stock, and so they send a lot of um, stage managers 
who go to the university to the opera during the summer because it's close by and they have a relationship with them. And that's where I did my first Nixon in China. So I graduate. I moved to New York City because I want to do Broadway. I want to do musicals. I worked there for a year. And you worked on Equus. I did Equus. I I literally landed in New York and three days later got a call from their production stage manager asking, you know, saying, can you come down and interview and within a week of moving to New York City, I had my first Broadway contract, which is <laughs> that's, pretty awesome. That's like no small thing. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. So I was like, I've made it. This is what I want to do. You know, I'm going to do Broadway. And the show closes and I do an off-Broadway contract for six months. And then my sister calls me up and she's like, hey, do you know there's an opera company in Long Beach? I was like, no, I don't know that. And she said, they're doing Nixon in China. You know, that's the piece that you really love. Apply for the job. You can come live with me for six weeks and you can do Nixon. So I did. And... I literally like flew myself out there and borrowed my cousin's car and slept on my sister's couch and I did my second Nixon in China. Through Long Beach, I got jobs at other companies from Connections in Long Beach and then it just kind of goes on from there. And, you know, opera people know opera people, so you keep getting recommended. And now almost 10 years later, I've done almost predominantly operas just because everybody knows each other in the opera world. Sure. And it's great. Once you build a reputation, then that's a pretty handy thing. Yeah. I'm curious about the Opera Omaha piece you did, The Wreck, because I'm not familiar with that one. And it sounded like it had a feminist bent to it. You're not familiar with it because it never existed before we did it. It was an immersive device opera that we physically created in 10 days. Oh. The director had never done opera before. She's a immersive collaborative artist based in Los Angeles predominantly. And she's friends with uh, the artistic director at Opera Omaha. And so he had asked her to come out and to create this work with uh, Mariana, who's actually a, a Ukrainian born musician who lives in Germany now, but she's friends with our director and came out. So what we ended up doing is we took three known pieces in opera, something from Lucia, uh, Dado and Aeneas, and a, a Hildegard piece. And then our composer, arranger, wrote three pieces of music. And then those two came to Omaha kind of with a loose story. They knew they wanted it to be about Anne Sexton's life, kind of. They wanted it to be feminine. So the entire design team, minus the lighting designer, the musicians, the designers, director, technicians, everybody was female. And there were mermaids involved, I think. So one of our singers was a mermaid and one was a housewife. We came to the table with, you know, there's these eight pieces of music and there's some voiceovers that we like and there's some poems that we like and we want it to be about uh, a female's experience and the struggle that women face with leaving home or with growing up and you know sometimes people can consider it you're abandoning your fa- your family when you're leaving or the struggle women face with oh I have to be this perfect mother and housewife but I also want to be this this person that like goes out and enjoys enjoys my life you know how do you deal with that and that's where Anne Sexton came in she wanted You know, in the 50s and 60s, she felt she needed to be this perfect housewife, but she also had this crazy soul and she was a poet and she wanted to, you know, go out and explore the world. So with all of that in mind, from the first day of rehearsal to opening, we had 10 days and we just kind of explored the space and played with different orders of songs and we cut songs and we played with voiceovers and sound cues and poems and Almost every day, everything was in a completely different order until opening night. So we kind of figured out what this piece was and we created this piece. And it was really amazing because a lot of people kept saying, well, there's no storyline. And so everyone was nervous when they came to the show. But that was kind of the piece at the festival that everybody connected with the most, because even though there wasn't a true story, 
it was so emotional that you really didn't need a story because you kind of felt that you could be these characters or you felt the, the, the essence of what the show was about. And I actually had a friend come up to me. He didn't want to see it. He was a, the assistant production manager, and he kept putting it off because he didn't want to come see it because he's like, no, I like stories. I like stories. <laughs> and he came to closing, and he came up to me after the show. And I was like, so what do you think? He's like, I'm really sorry. And I was like, for what? He's like, I loved this piece. And I was like, well, you don't need to apologize for that. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> do you think it has legs, as it were? You know, a lot of people were asking that, if we could, like, take it on the road. But because we... We created it in this warehouse with everything, all the costumes and scenery and props were everything that we had found in thrift stores and antique stores in Omaha. It was kind of Omaha-based. I feel like there could be a possibility to take it somewhere else. What was kind of special about it is that the audience members who came could look around and be like, oh yeah, my grandmother had that refrigerator and I remember my great-grandmother had that rug and it, because it was all locally based. I think if we were to take it to another location and kind of create the same story, we would have to do with all the same musicians and the same singers, but then find our set and find our costumes based on that locale. Because Omaha would be very different than what, in my mind, physically, the 50s and 60s were in, you know, Texas or in Boston. It would, it would have a different feel to it. I just love that sensitivity you have to locale. I think it is because I'm a very, like, <laughs> feeling kind of person, you know? And mm -hmm. if, if you walk into a room and you recognize something and then you relate to it really well, if you don't recognize something, you relate to it differently. And so it was very important to our designers and our director that everything was very locally sourced. Well, you've had to develop some openness to all kinds of things like that. And uh, just from what I've read about you, you've worked in a lot of non-traditional spaces. I do, and I love it. Well, tell me more about that. What I love about it is that my, my sister and I argue about this regularly. I love non-traditional spaces because you can make it whatever you want to make it, or you can find a space to fit whatever feeling that you want it to be. So you're not constrained by these four walls and the audience is only in front of you, and you have these three electrics that you could put lights on, and this is the size of your stage. So if you're smart about it, or the company's smart about it, you know, you, you figure out what show you want to do, you figure out what you want the show to look like and feel like, and then you go and find a space that works with what you want it to be. My sister's argument is it's a lot more work for our technical director because then you do have to figure out, like, where you're getting your electricity, where is it coming from, how much power can you pull, where are you hanging lights, because it might just be a room and you have to physically bring that all in yourself. But artistically, I think you can create so much more with non-traditional spaces. And I think it's fun for audience members. I'm going to go to the opera, but today it's at cruise ship terminal. And tomorrow it's going to be in a, an abandoned warehouse that once used to be a brewery, you know? And so for me, it's fun to kind of go to those different spaces and experience opera, which so many people think is traditional and boring, in these spaces that are not traditional and boring. And so I think that opens up a whole nother audience base that you don't usually think about. And this is probably a good time for me to ask you, what kind of advice would you give to someone who's looking to get into the world you're in? Think outside of the box. A lot of stage managers, and it's just the way we're trained, is very regimented and very oriented. You know, there's paperwork that you do on every show, and this is the way the paperwork's set up, and this is the way rehearsals run. But I feel when you're in experimental spaces, and especially when you're doing a, a, a new piece, kind of like The Wreck, you can't really fit those shows into a traditional format. You have to kind of let go of all your old habits and adjust to what the show needs. 
I've always tried to be a stage manager that stage manages for the show and not stage manage an opera, if that makes sense. And I've had this discussion with a number of people because I've had a lot of people tell me that opera stage management is different than stage managing a musical or stage managing a, a straight show and that some people are good at one and not the other. But I always go about it differently. I'm stage managing a show. It doesn't matter to me if it's a musical or an opera or an experimental piece. I know what I need to do as a stage manager physically to make the show happen. And so it doesn't matter to me what it is or where it is. I kind of know what I need to do in order to help that process along. So to me, it's just letting go of all of those things that you're trained to do in a sense and look at the broader picture of it. You're trained to make a safe working environment for the performers and for the designers, and that's what you need to do. It's not about regimen. Yeah, it sounds it sounds to me like you're talking about the managing of the telling of a story. You're there to make sure performers are safe and that the, the show happens for the most part. So what do you need to do to make those two things happen? Cindy, you are just fascinating to me, and it sounds like you really have a sense of how to do what you do and obviously how to do it well. Well, I still feel like every show you kind of learn new things and you're still trying to figure it out all the time. But if I focus on the show and if I focus on the people, then everything else kind of falls into place. Right. I suspect that's what makes you as good as you are. But I am I am thrilled to actually get to interview you. So thank you so much because I know... With this Portland show, you've got a lot going on in your life right now. (laughs) Oh, it's so much fun, though. I love talking about new works and experimental theater. So anytime I get to talk about it is perfect. Yay. Well, is there anything else you want to leave us with that you can think we need to know? Go see opera. Go see shows, you know. Look at all the experimental stuff that's being done. You know, even if you don't know what the show is or you've never heard of it before, that might be the one you connect with the most. No one had ever heard of the wreck because it never existed, but that's the one that everybody loved the most in Omaha. So just experiment. Yeah. Go see live theater always. See theater, exactly. Yeah. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for taking time out, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk again soon. I hope so. Thank you so much, Sally. It's time now for Concise Advice from the Interview, where I share bits of advice from professional stage manager Cynthia Hennen-Marino. Number seven, stage manage a show as opposed to a genre of theater. Number six, help the designers make a safe working environment for the performers. Number five, focus on the show and focus on the people and everything else will fall into place. Number four, go see opera. Number three, use physical cues to show you are open to a conversation. Number two, experiment and have fun. And the number one piece of advice from professional stage manager Cynthia Hennen Marino think outside the box. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. You, too, can be a Sally Pal by signing up for a free creator's notebook insert at sallypal.com join. Thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Now I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. Hey, George, what's your wisdom for today? Take a chance. You never know how perfect something might turn out to be. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent 
Advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or falling asleep to my recitatives, like my sister does, let me know you're out there. Storytelling through plays, dances, opera, and other types of performances is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I encourage you to share your stories, because you're the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. I want to help you tell your stories. All the stories ever expressed once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, think outside the box. Well, that just sounded stupid. How can I say that so it doesn't sound weird? Let's be professional, shall we? Am I, you know, are my eyes really shifty? I don't know what's going on, but, but I do think. <laughs> okay, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear Great. me or is there too much background noise? Opera, opera, opera. Opera, opera, opera. Go see opera. I can't stop saying opera, opera, opera. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>